0: Welcome to a special edition of Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, Posted on April 21st, 2010. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast... The
1: growth experiment worked really well for some people for a long time, and now it isn't working well. Now it's pumped up against its limits.
0: That's writer Bill McKibben, the scholar-in-residence at Vermont's Middlebury College. He's also the founder of 350.org, an international climate campaign. McKibben's first book was the 1989 bestseller, The End of Nature. It was the first book for a general audience about climate change. He's written numerous books since, the latest of which is called Earth, making a life on a tough new planet. In it, he argues that relentless growth is fundamentally altering the environment and our ability to live in it, and that maintenance of wealth and resources instead of expansion must be society's new driver. He spells Earth, by the way, E-A-A-R-T-H, to point out the fact that the Earth today is a very different place from the one on which he was born. The April issue of Scientific American includes an exclusive excerpt from the book, and Scientific American's Mark Fischetti recently visited McKibben at his solar-powered home in Ripton, Vermont. They talked for a little over an hour, a conversation we've broken into two parts. Here's part one.
2: So chapter one, to me, seems like it's basically saying, hey, we've permanently altered the Earth, no longer works the way it used to, We have to still try to reduce atmospheric carbon dioxide to 350 parts per million to prevent worse damage, but we have to accept that we live on a fundamentally different planet.
1: That's right. Um, Without knowing it, we've sort of taken a voyage and landed on a planet that's superficially, in certain ways, similar to the one we grew up on, but in certain other ways quite different and uh, different enough that it's going to require us to change the way we think and the way we act and for me it was you know having written the first book about climate change 20 years ago it it was at that time this was a theoretical proposition Mm. and the damage that I was talking about then was as much philosophical as anything else to our idea of the natural world and whatever and 20 years ago we would not have thought that this would happen this quickly. People underestimated how finely balanced the planet's physical systems were. But it turned out that they were very finely balanced indeed. And so we've begun to see these really quite staggering changes. And I think very few people have come yet to grips with that. That the perception still is that this is a future issue, a threat that we're heading off something as I say in the book for our grandchildren to deal with yeah, right. but uh it's not so there's an almost uh, science fiction cast to it i really wanted people to understand viscerally that the point i was trying to make that we were born onto a different planet than the one we now live on it's not entirely different you know gravity still applies it's still mostly ocean and whatever but fundamental things like the way the seasons progress how much rain falls where you know even very the the meteorologists have said recently that they think the meteorological tropics have expanded about two degrees north and two degrees south Um, that's pretty powerful you know especially since it shifts the dry subtropics ahead of it and it's the reason that australia is now turning into a you know, one large fire zone. Um, uh, you know, these are very, very, this is a very, very different world. So chapter two then, mm.
2: basically moves ahead to say that um, the new earth, the altered earth, can no longer support the economic or population growth that's driven society at least in the last 200 years. Yeah, And that, that history shows that over time, this kind of overgrowth causes societies to collapse, um, and people are saying you have to grow the economy to get out of the situation. Right. Or so the planet no longer really has the,
1: the spare capacity. Capacity, right? To support that, or the spare money at this point. I mm-hmm. mean, um, systems always try to react to problems with the in the way that they're used to reacting to things. Right. Our System's huge bias is to address every problem as one that can be addressed by growing the size of things more, you know. Uh, Which is why we instantly start talking about building, you know, endless huge green transmission corridors and, you know, on and on and on smart houses. All of which are, it's all of which is very sensible in some sense. Mm -hmm. Um, I just, my analysis is we're unlikely to to come up with the wherewithal to do that in the time that we have. Um, certainly, we're not going to do it in the time to prevent big changes. They're already happening. But whether we can even do it in time to prevent sort of catastrophic level changes is, I think, very, very questionable. Um, in fact, highly unlikely. And I think a more likely analysis is that we've hit those limits to growth that people started talking about in the 1970s, and that for a while seemed to have been, uh, you know, everybody said, "Oh, limits to growth are no limits." Right. Morning in America, Paul Ehrlich is an idiot. You know, on and on and on. Right. Okay. Um, but we're clearly running up into them now uh, in powerful ways. The amount of food per capita, grain per capita, grown on the planet, has been shrinking steadily of fish around the world has been declining right. steadily uh, there are more higher number and percentage of people who are hungry now than there were a few years ago uh, so on and so forth right. and so one of the points I wanted to make is that this already or if we're already starting to run into limits that those are going to be seriously exacerbated by the problems that we're. Uh, now encountering with shifts in weather and with, and with the advent of peak oil. Right. So, you know, we think that our technological challenge is going to be building zippity doodah, you know, transmission corridors hither and yon and huge green power things to supply them whatever. You know, uh, close to home, <laughs> our, our technological challenge is figuring out how we're going to keep our road that you just drove up from washing completely away. You know, the next time we have one of these record rainstorms, our one link to New York across Lake Champlain, the crown point bridge is now closed forever because it's been allowed to rot after 80 years, uh, you know, on and on and on. Um, uh, Everything that we're talking about is infrastructure of one way or another. And it's not as simple as just, well, let's build some more new green kind. Right.
2: So the third chapter um, uh, makes the point, really, that the trend has always been towards bigger Mm -hmm. For the last 200 years, the trend has been towards bigger centralized economies. And there's no more room for bigger, um, as evidenced by the sort of shocking realization that are we have more and more institutions that are "quote" too big to fail, mm-hmm. uh, and it's not just banking, but it's food, it's energy, um, and I think you sort of end there um, by saying, it's, "and it's not just the size, but it's the it's the complexity, it's this intertwining of all these monstrous um, institutions, companies, um, and that that probably is." Maybe even more of the problem is your size.
1: Yeah, it, I mean, and and they're very interrelated because the thing that the thing that's allowed that complexity and that size is the access to endless amounts of cheap fossil fuel, which we no longer are going to have. A, because we're starting to run out. B, more powerfully because we can no longer safely burn it. And so I think that the logic, I mean, you know, the logic of fossil fuel was a centralizing one. It occurred in a few places. It was highly efficient to take it to other centers. It was easy to transport. You'd take it to some centralized place, burn it in mass quantities, produce power that you then distributed widely. Um, the logic of what comes next is very different. But, but that's a hard emotional logic, among other things, to, to get your head around um, in the United States, in particular, we're very used to the idea of bigness and of measuring progress in those ways, and uh, you know, um, you know, right up through the interstate highway system or whatever it is. And even though we've kind of run out of big projects to work on at some level, um, that's still where we naturally tend to go. And and for those of us who have had the privilege of or the accident of living in small places it's, we have something useful to add to this debate. Vermont is a really interesting exception to a number of American rules including the fact that it takes seriously the idea that it's supposed to govern itself locally and so on
2: Right, so that leads naturally into the last chapter then which is the the way to untangle this Societies to return to the distributed economy.
1: Distributed, yeah, distribute a lot of things. Yeah. And that's the logic of f- renewable power above all else. It's diffuse. It's scattered. You know? And so, by, I mean, I, you know, I've got solar panels out in the yard there. There will be wind towers up on the ridge. You know, it's, 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 it's diffuse. And so by its nature... Uh, it lends itself to a more diffuse and scattered way of understanding the world. So does the food system. Once you get away from growing food in oil, which is our current preoccupation, one that isn't going to last much longer, um, the need for local production and control, whatever food has the same... And, and I was sort of trying to argue at the end that I think much the same thing is sort of happening with culture as well. Um, uh, that we have simultaneously this incredibly interesting global thing, the, the Internet, and it's allowing you to live very locally and globally at the same time.
2: So is that a fair summation?
1: Very much. Did skip something. I, I, no, I think you got it. I mean, I'm very interested in the global scale on the one hand. That's where I spend much of my time working, and and on the local scale on the other. And I think we're we're going to find out that those are the scales we need to work on, and many of the intermediary ones no longer make as much sense as they used to.
2: Um, I, I do have, I have various questions, but since we yeah. we were just talking about the, the internet, yeah, and the yeah, global culture. I think the point there is that uh, if people accept that you can create power locally and we can define a localist, but and through locally and, and that uh, it sounds like you're saying that the, maybe the biggest or a big factor in resisting that notion is this being afraid that, Hey, my life's going to get too small, too local, too local. Absolutely. Right? And, and so, but you know, you can have this, uh, this, Relationship with the big wide
1: world. For a long time, you had to, you know, you had to decide whether you were going to stay at home in your tight local culture, or whether you were going to go out into the world and make something of yourself. That was how we phrased it. Yes, um, and that's no longer as acute a choice. You know, uh, you can stay at home and be very tied into your local place, and yet deeply, deeply connected to the rest of the world. And for me, that's not at all a uh, intellectual argument. That's the story of my last couple of years of my life. I mean, you know, me and seven 24-year-olds just organized the most widespread day of political action in the planet's history, with 5,200 rallies in 181 countries from every corner of the planet And, you know, we did it almost entirely through Skype, through, uh, uh, you know, our website, through making connections. You know, we did a certain amount of travel, too. But we organized it in such a way that all these things happened very locally. And then we could take the unbelievable images that they produced and make them a global spectacle, as indeed we did.
2: If the vision of distributed, I don't want to just dwell on food and energy, although mm. we talk about those most. Yeah, book, well, those are right? pretty
1: key. Yes.
2: Life, yeah. uh, <laughs> you can come up with a better term than me. Uh, but if, if, if that's the vision that has to catch on, mm. you know, because it, 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 it's one thing to do that in Vermont, but to do it in New York City, well, or see, I New Jersey. Or I think whatever.
1: it's in some ways much easier in cities yeah. um, than any place else. And certainly around the world, things like the urban agriculture movement and stuff are just booming. Cities, there's a lot of natural, easy human contact, um, you know, um, uh, and it's really cool to see. You know, some cities are so built up that it's a little difficult to see. But even, you know, Shanghai produces something like half its own fruit and vegetables within the county limits, you know. And, you know, New York, Right. Uh, you know, upstate New York or, you know, the counties to the north of New York are filled with abandoned ag land. You know, quite possible to imagine this becoming a much more self-sufficient place than it is at the moment. Because it was a hundred years ago when its population was just as large as it is now.
2: Mm-hmm. Do you think the way that 350.org has spread and worked uh, would also succeed in trying to spread this vision
1: distributed Well it's not quite the same because we're not you wouldn't try to sort of do a big political campaign kind of around it. Right. But it is the way that this, you know, that things like this local war movement mm-hmm. and local agriculture in general have spread very rapidly. Farm local farmers markets are the fastest growing part of the food economy in this country and have been for a decade now. They're just booming everywhere. And it's not because there's some central directorate of farmers' markets in Washington that's telling people to do it. If anything, the opposite, everything Washington does makes it difficult to do all of this stuff. But it's been uh uh people spreading ideas left and right, and it's been great. People do have a channel now to work around established institutions, and that's really important.
2: The, the the early assertion in the book about uh, I think is being proven out. You know, that the, the Earth really can't substantiate either the resources that we're extracting from it or the waste that we're producing. Um, and there's more studies that are coming out very recently, even um, that are prove you know I'm starting to put numbers on all of this. So um, so the assertion is, then I think is that continued growth is not. Possible without greater resource consumption and waste creation. Is that true, first of all?
1: Certainly, as things are, as systems are set up at the moment. Now, you can do things more efficiently, and we should, and everybody's trying to. But, you know, that, I mean, a classic example is looking, say, at the offer the Chinese made this week on how they're going to reduce the energy intensity of their. Uh, GDP. It will, we'll reduce it 40% by 2020. By 2020, everything we make will use 40% less energy per dollar or per yuan of value. Okay. Which is good. I mean, th- there's no argument to be made against them doing it. But their own economic projections indicate that their economy is going to grow so quickly that they'll be producing more CO2 instead of less at the end of that period. Clearly, we can, to some degree or another, break some of that absolute iron lock between more consumption and, and growth, but it's extremely difficult. I mean, it's the reason that Obama isn't willing to take on climate change in a really powerful way. Because was, well, it's going to look at the damage it'll do the economy. The economy's in a rough place. We've got to get the economy back on its feet. At some level, the economy is more real to our, certainly to our policymakers, than the physical world. Right. You know, we coddle it more. We sit there worrying more about its, even the words we, oh, the economy, you know, is in, in a rough patch. It's ailing. Right. Um, you know, whatever. Uh, the, the inability to remember that the economy is a subset of something larger is is a mark of the modern age. I'm afraid. Right.
2: right. Well, some people would say that um, the tough nut in that is still trying to continue to solve basic human problems. Yep, it like is the tough nut. Poverty, hunger, disease, without growth.
1: Absolutely, it is the tough nut. So here's the first thing you got to do. The- is look realistically at what happens to the poorest and most vulnerable people in the world if we keep doing what we're doing. And the answer is they get drowned, they get dengue fever, the fields on which they depend are either drought-ridden or flooded. Uh, you take away the... I mean, these are the people who in the immediate future have the most at risk from disintegration of ecological systems and are already feeling it in a deep way as someone who's been to bangladesh and gotten dengue fever i can speak of that with certain amount of first-hand sense of this thing i didn't die but there were a lot of people dying when i was there it's a disease that's increased 200 percent across asia and south america this decade so that's so so that's the first thing um you don't do poor people any favor by further destabilizing the world. And even the you know those countries, their leaders, are starting to realize this in a serious way. So then you have to ask, what kind of world is... I mean, I think all these questions, the single most important thing you have to think about when you're answering them all is, what what is the impact on the poorest and most vulnerable people on the planet? So what is it that does work for... Poor and vulnerable people. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think the evidence is pretty clear that, uh, for instance, local, labor-intensive, uh, low-input agriculture is the smartest option for much of the world. Mm-hmm. Both in terms of providing jobs, security, stability. And food, and in making those ecological systems robust enough to withstand the damage that's coming, Mm -hmm. it's already here.
2: So, so then, um, by helping poor
1: peoples of the world become more self-sufficient, which means in energy terms, you know, lots and lots of village-scale solar. I mean, this is the kind of place where money. You know, And resources should be flowing very, very quickly and freely north to south. We screwed up the climate. It's our absolute responsibility to figure out how to allow poor people to have something approaching a decent life without burning all the coal that they've got. And we've got to do that for uh, moral reasons and for very pragmatic ones, too.
2: And the assumption there is that it's still going to be zero growth. I mean, the balance...
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not a. I don't tend. I don't sort of think about things in quite those. T- yeah. I'm more, much more interested in trajectories.
2: Well, that's what I was going to ask. Mm-hmm. I mean, are you really calling for absolute? No, I've, no I have no.
1: I have no. It's not sort of part growth. of the analysis. It's like, it's what do we find out? Where do we move if we start moving in a different direction, mm-hmm. away from anticipating growth as the answer to things, and start trying? What is and that's what's good and hopeful. We don't know what happens when you start trying to push on some of these other levers instead. So when you start thinking about uh, uh, localization of economies, when you start thinking about measuring things other than growth, as some countries have begun to do, you try to measure satisfaction or whatever, um, well, you know that a lot of things change, but you don't know exactly how, because it's not really an experiment we've We've been so engrossed in the growth experiment that we've tried very little else. And the growth experiment worked really well for some people for a long time. And now it isn't working well. Now it's pumped up against its limits. Right.
2: So, so it's it's uh, you know you know what's going to happen. It's, these ideas are going to get boiled down, and people gonna say, "Well, we're talking about no growth, and that's going that's bad. No growth is bad." Um, so, is it really smart growth? Uh, or is it, as you say, more just the philosophy? Of- I'm
1: more interested in, in, like as I say, in trajectory, in uh, what happens if you start aiming in a different direction. Um, and so, you know, uh, and, and I don't know whether, I mean, uh, my guess is that in sort of sheer, you know, sort of dollar value terms or whatever, you get less than you have at the moment. Uh, economies measured in certain ways begin to shrink. Um, But I think measured in other ways, things get much more robust and secure. You start having a food supply you can count on. Um, You start having an energy supply you can count on and know that isn't undermining everything else that you do. You start building, and this is very important, communities strong enough to count on. Um, So your own individual collection of wealth becomes less important um than the community in which you participate brought up Paul Ehrlich earlier mm. and, um
2: his basic argument was you know population growth mostly population growth maybe rise yeah. yeah. to you know would outstrip the world's resources and there going to be widespread famine and, um Lester Brown more recently has talked about um Know, food scarcity causing social collapse but i don't think you're predicting those things but it does sound in some ways similar i think Sometimes that
1: they were i think they were less prophetic uh ehrlich and things i mean interesting and important but less prophetic than the original um mit team that produced limits to growth i went back and looked at that as i was doing this book and everybody should it's a quite remarkable document um You know, it's computer calculations. I mean, it was the first sort of computerized attempt to forecast the future. And of course, it's models are crude. There's a fairly small number of variables. But they, yeah, MIT limits to growth. Danella Meadows, Dennis Meadows, Jurgen Ronders. Um, they picked incredibly good proxies, almost, you know, with a great deal of prescience. The proxy they picked, uh, for environmental degradation, is CO2 concentration in the atmosphere. Even though in 1971, no one was paying any attention to what CO2, but it was just like something you... So they weren't able to say exactly why or what we were going to run out of or what we were going to produce too much of, but they were able to make a pretty compelling case that this was the inevitable consequence of a kind of exponential growth world. And much more than population, which proved to be pretty plastic, you know? Um, fertility rates, in some small part, at least due to Paul Ehrlich's work, dropped immensely. People started figuring out that if you educated women and gave them, empowered them, then fertility rates would change dramatically. We never did figure out what would change consumption rates because we didn't want to. The whole point was to consume more, you know, and, and hence they've gone on a straight ahead rocket ride up for 50 years uh, 40 years since the limits to growth came out and we're now you know now we're seeing what happens so they couldn't have predicted exactly what the uh, set of events was going to be that would because we didn't know about climate change at least in the way we know it now um, but boy their time frame was about right
2: another uh, historic kind of angle on this might mm. Be, or well, in the '70s, the so-called, during the so-called first energy crisis, mm-hmm. right? Ef Schumacher mm-hmm. published this book, "Small Is Beautiful," mm-hmm. which basically said, you know, big is bad. things you know, was, I think, really pitched against the industry more than anything mm-hmm. else. Um, but part of the point was that um, to be sustainable, you could still have a big organization as long as it was done in a way that was a bunch of small related organizations. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I think people hear, hey, local energy, local food, they're thinking, really, you know, Mm -hmm. their town or less. Right. But maybe that's not...
1: And maybe it's not. We'll figure out sort of what sensible, you know, ways of... One of the things... And Schumacher, by the way, is very interesting, much more complicated and interesting than people give him credit for. Uh I'm writing the foreword to a new edition of Small is Beautiful. Oh, oh, really? Uh And uh, enjoying it immensely. Um um one of the things that we need to get out of this system in order to really get a sense of what will work is the incredibly distorting set of subsidies that at the moment send all kinds of bad signals about what we should be doing. So in energy they're very obvious, you know, we've underwritten fossil fuel for a very long time and continue to, you know, even the new energy bill is supposed to, you know, give unbelievable gifts to the nuclear industry, the right. "quote clean coal" unquote industry, on and on and on. You know, it's even more egregious in agriculture and food. You know, where almost all the world's the country's cropland is now devoted to growing corn and soybeans, not because there is this unbelievable demand to eat corn and soybeans, but because there is a federal subsidy for growing them, a subsidy basically written into the law by a few huge corn and soybean consuming companies Cargill Archer Daniels Midland whatever who control the senators of the corn states you know and hence have enough power to to enact egregious policy into law Um, you know as those things begin to wither, and I think they probably will in a world where money becomes somewhat scarcer, and, yeah, right. I mean, look at the size of the deficits we're now running. Right. We have less room to maneuver than we used to, and eventually you know, even some of, some of these toughly guarded policies will begin to falter. Then we'll start to figure out a lot more what scale of organization makes sense. One of the points I make in the book, I talk about my friend, Todd Murphy, who runs this great institution called the Farmer's Diner, probably should have gone down to Middlebury to eat lunch at the yeah. Farmer's Diner. Um, uh, he always talks about how what he needs to make his operation work are not huge factory farms because he doesn't want that or buy from them, and really not teeny tiny, you know, boutique farms where you know the name of each of your 10 cows, right. you know. Uh, I need sort of 1950s scale. Farms—the kind, the exact kind—that are impossible to have in a world with where you know where we subsidize the wrong things. Right.
2: You make the, you make the point also in the book that um, at least the your vision of what the answer would be for food production are more farms where that may be more labor intensive, yep. human labor intensive, yep. instead of industrialized. Yep. But that that would create
1: more jobs. Um, more interest in farming yep.
2: because um, they, the farmers are going to reap more of the money.
1: Yep. For, for. And because they'll be working on a project and at a scale that's fundamentally satisfying instead of fundamentally industrial and degrading. Right. Right. Less than 1% of Americans are in their living farming at the moment. Mm-hmm. So there's twice as many prisoners as there are farmers in the right. United States. We're never going to go back to having 50% of America farm. But we definitely need more than 1% of America farming if we're going to do it without vast quantities of fossil fuel, which we can no longer, for many reasons, continue to do. Um, and I think that'll be altogether healthy, and I think there'll be lots of people who will enjoy it immensely. I know that at Middlebury College, where I teach uh, uh, elite uh, uh, uh a um, wonderful academic institution, graduates more than a handful every year of kids whose biggest desire is to go start farming someplace. Mm-hmm. The college farm garden is one of its great assets, one of the things that kids love and work hard at, and it's incredibly beautiful and productive. And I find that really encouraging. I mean, you know, given the choice, it seems to me it's a much better use of your talents than... Going off to Wall Street to, you know, uh, uh, grow a hedge fund of some kind. Okay.
2: And with that system of food production, is there a chance that prices would be higher because of the labor?
1: Yeah, um, depends. Um, you cut out so many middlemen that you know you that that. I mean, I spent a year eating nothing that wasn't grown locally. Our mm-hmm. um, whole family. We still pretty much do, as you can tell by our lunch we just had, but, um, but we were religious for years, a kind of experiment. Most things weren't more expensive. Um, if you buy vegetables from a CSA, one of these community supported agriculture farms, I think it's got to be the cheapest way to get food that there is in this country. But meat's more expensive. Partly that's because raising grass fed beef necessarily is you know, more careful work and less, uh, uh, you know, industrial than just standing them in a cement lot someplace and tossing corn at them. Um, heavily subsidized corn at them. Right. <laughs> um, but, you know, frankly, eating less meat isn't the end of the world for Americans. Um, uh, it's not like we're the healthiest people that ever lived. Mm-hmm. And that kind of, among other things, that we're now beginning to understand that that kind of, Grass-fed agriculture is exactly what we need to get a lot of carbon and methane back in the soil too, to very useful and Right,
2: right. What about in other countries? In, you know, in Africa, there's the people. Have, a lot of dedicated people, right, have struggled for a long time to try to get local agriculture
1: to work, and it hasn't. Well, no, local agriculture is what they, you know, is what they've sort of largely had. But people have. What's happened in Africa... Certainly what's happened in Latin America and things is that everybody's been kicked off the farm as we've industrialized agriculture. So you go to Mexico and you pass NAFTA and suddenly there's a million fewer corn farmers five years later mm-hmm. because they can't compete with the subsidized stuff in the American Midwest. And, you know, what happens when you live in Africa? Well, you're Mexico or something, you know. Chances are, well, if you're in Mexico, you might try to come across the border and if you don't if you're in Africa you end up living in a cardboard box on the edge of the national capital you know um there's some places where that process has worked better china is the one really powerful example mm-hmm. you know um people have gone to the city and gotten richer um and made better lives but boy it's on the edge of breaking down in china too and there's still 700 million people back on the farm
2: what about Africa? I mean, it comes up a lot.
1: Um, yeah, I think, it's very, I think it's very heartening to see. Um, uh, th- one of the things that really gives me heart in the, the book, thats the big best news in the book is this last few years, this spread of all kinds of um, smart and technologically adept small-scale agriculture around the developing world. That guy Jules Pretty, that I quote in the book, the English agronomist, is who's the real fountain of knowledge about all this. Is one of the most encouraging guys in the world in certain ways. You know, um, place after place. It's not like it's just we're going back to traditional ways. No, I mean people have figured out lots of cool things to do. Uh, you know, um, um, so you know people learn how to double dig beds and do various soil conservation techniques they learn how to uh intercrop uh, all kinds of things agroforestry um learn how to grow large amounts of fish in rice paddies even if your rice yield declines a little bit your protein yield goes through the roof um uh this is all like very smart stuff It depends on where you are, so there's not going to be one system that spreads across the entire world the way that we've tried to spread industrial fertilizer, synthetic fertilizer-based agriculture to every corner of the planet. Um, It's going to be much smarter than that. And it is much smarter than that. Happily, farmers are some of the smartest people in the world, so they're completely capable of doing it.
0: Tune back in for part two of Mark Fischetti's interview with Bill McKibben. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky.